Good morning. A little Methodist boy turned to his grandmother one day and said, what do we Methodists believe about the communion? To which the grandmother said, I don't really know. I just know we believe a little more than the Baptists, but less than the Roman Catholics. (laughs) I think it really does sum up in some ways the challenge uh, when we come and ask the question, what do we believe and what do we experience and mean by this great Eucharistic festival? This particular Sunday or day, as Jonathan mentioned, Dr. Powers, is that this is the fourth in this series on the means of grace. And this week we're looking at uh, the Eucharist as a means of grace. And what I'd like to do is I'd like to, for you to picture the Eucharist as a grand, majestic symphony, like a, like a glorious orchestral event, but in the, in the original Italian version of it where you have three classic movements. And the Eucharist really is uh, about three wonderful movements. And the three movements could be called uh, in some ways, they, a past, a present, and a future movement. The past movement is the movement we might call a past deliverance. The present movement we'll call the present presence. And the third movement, the future victory. And like a orchestral movement, you may know that the movements happen with three, there's three phases within each movement. And so there's actually three truths that are embedded in each of these movements. So a total of nine things that Christians believe about the Eucharist. Now, I will say as a matter of uh, confessional openness here that of the nine things, the church only agrees on eight of the nine. But we do agree on eight of the nine. And as I will see, even on one of these, which is the fourth of the nine, uh, the church actually in substance is in unity on the point though we do have significant differences about it, but it doesn't affect the unity of the church. So first, let's look at the first movement, which is the movement about past deliverance. When you come before the Eucharist, there are three ways we encounter the Eucharist as reference points to the past. The first is the Passover itself. Uh, The first Eucharist was instituted on the night of the Passover. That's not a mistake. So we're told that in the night of Passover came... And so we have this continuation of a meal from a past meal, right? So the Passover was a meal of deliverance, marking God's great deliverance of Israel, and they marked it with a meal of remembrance. So we remember that that this is actually set within and indeed grows out of the original deliverance, redemptive deliverance of, of the people of God. And in fact, we all know, of course, that the gospel itself fulfills it since the blood of bulls and goats cannot actually take away sin. So Christ, in some ways, fulfills the Passover feast. It's also a past uh, reality when you come forward because when you come forward, you remember, obviously, the death and resurrection of Christ himself. Christ becomes the new Passover. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7 and 8, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed Therefore, let us keep the feast. So Paul actually does make the connection that Christ's death is like Christ, the Lamb of God, the Passover of God being reenacted in the death of Christ. So when we come forward, we remember the death and resurrection of Christ and the centrality of that in the Eucharistic festival, the broken bread. 
Thirdly, we, of course, remember our own baptism. Uh, last week, uh, we recalled how Luther, remember in uh, Marburg Castle in 1521, where he threw the inkwell at the devil? You're here last week. And I told you that uh, he shouted when he threw the, the, the inkwell at the devil, he shouted something. What did he shout? Yes, I am baptized. Baptized, I assume. And when he did that, he essentially remembered his baptism, not as simply a past event that happened in history, but as a status. We are the baptized people of God. So when we're baptized, uh, it's a once in your lifetime of event, but when you come before Eucharist, you remember your baptism. So you're also looking back at your own baptism, which becomes the ongoing status to the very present. And so in those three ways in the past, the Passover, Christ's death on the cross, and our own baptism, we're looking backward, remembering great redemptive works in the life of the church, life of people of God in their own lives. The second uh, is the present movement, where we come and we encounter things that are present. And it is this point where the church has disagreement. And that is the belief of the real presence of Christ. In what way is Christ present at this table or in, under, with the elements? And this, of course, is a matter where the church disagrees. If you know church history, you'll know that the church was so determined to find unity on this point that they decided to have a big colloquy in Marburg. That's called the Marburg Colloquy. It happened in 1529, between October 1 and October 4. And Luther and Zwingli met and had long discussions about this. And they, uh, Luther famously carved in the table, hoc es corpus meum, this is my body. To which Zwingli wrote, you know, do this in remembrance of me. And they really, dis- dis- they really disagreed about this point. Now, I want to say that in terms of the unity of the church, by the way, the, uh, in terms of present theology, they actually, in that colloquy, just for the sake of the record, they actually had 15 points that they uh, had discussed, and 14 of the 15, they found agreement. It was, this was the only point where they couldn't agree on the, on the Lord's presence in the Eucharist. But the reason for the difference, uh, and I want to just point out, by the way, our own uh, Eucharist table, which reflects kind of our uh, might say more on the Lutheran and Zwingli side of this. The traditional table, if you go to a church, says, do this in remembrance of me, right? I'm sure you've seen that thousands of times. And that's what was at Asbury for many years because that's kind of the traditional table you buy, you know, if you go to like Amazon.com and buy a communion table. You can, <laughs> you can, buy, you can buy a communion table at Amazon.com. It's amazing, right? Anyway, but... We said we wanted to commission a different table when we had our renovation because we wanted, by the way, there's nothing wrong with that statement. It's a true statement. The question is, is there anything more to say? And the, we wanted to say this statement, which actually captures the remembrance. Remember Jesus Christ, but Jesus Christ risen. And it's actually this point where the Reformers disagreed. And the, the disagreement actually comes down to your view of the ascension of Christ. What happened when Christ ascended into heaven? What happened at that point to the relationship between the deity and the humanity of Christ? The church has a legitimate, you know, in-house fight about that. So what happened? Luther said, uh, and I think Wesley would agree with this. Luther said, when Christ rose, he arose from here to everywhere. 
meaning that Christ reassumes his omnipresence. And therefore, even though he's at the right hand of the Father, he is also can be with us. And therefore, he can also be with in and under the elements. Zwingli said when asked during that Marburg uh, colloquy, when they asked, where is, the pre- where is Christ's presence in relation to this table? He said, Christ's presence is the exact distance from the table to the right hand of the Father in heaven. Because his point was, because Christ at the right hand of the Father, he's there, he cannot be here. Now that was believed because that whole wing of the church, and there's many in that camp, believe that the humanity of Christ is not communicated to the, to the deity of Christ and that they're keeping the, the, you know, the whole two-nature, one-person doctrine. At what point do you, how do the two natures and one person intersect on this point at the ascension? Whereas others believe that at the ascension, in the omnipresence of Christ, the same person, the Trinity, the, the humanity of Christ is still infused in that omnipresence in some mysterious way. The point is the church disagreed, but this is where I come back to the unity of the church. Though the church does, in fact, disagree on the, the, how this is explained and understood, we all believe, and Zwingli himself agreed with this point with Luther, that the sign, that is the elements, all signify something, that is, they signify Christ. There is no dispute in the church that when we come forward into the presence of God in the Eucharist, that element signifies Christ and his work in our lives. In that sense, the church is unified, even if we don't know the exact mystery of how that happens. Now, it also comes down to how we understand words and how words are spoken. Uh, if a policeman stops you and says to you, you're under arrest, those words transform your life. <laughs> I, some of you act like you've had that experience. Um, I haven't had that experience yet, but it could, I guess. But uh, if an umpire says to you, you're out, all right, even though um, you may not think you're out or you may have questions about being out, the fact is you're out because he or she has declared you out, right? And so there are many ways in our own life we understand how words do affect reality. So in the same way, when Jesus says in John 6, I'm the living bread that comes down from heaven, Jesus is talking about what it means for him to say things and affect things. So, for example, when Jesus says, Kalitha kum, he says, little girl, get up. Okay, it affected, resurrection was affected into her dead body, right? Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus comes forth. Something affected has happened by that. Or, more, even more amazingly, your sins are forgiven you. Now we're getting close to the table. That Christ can say something to you, and that saying can affect something real in you. And when Christ says, this is my body, it's talking about something that happens in the reality of that. Not, not in the change of substance, but in the change of the essence of that, in terms of how Christ meets us in that. And that is Christ's real presence at the table. The second uh, present point is the work of Christ as applied to our lives. When we come forward into the, to see the table, Christ meets us at the table and he breaks the power of sin in our lives. That's part of what happens. Uh, one of our students who's long graduated, but I'm showing this story because he himself made it public in a, one of our, 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 our sessions in the, uh, over in the cafeteria. We had a student who came to campus regularly, 
and didn't, I mean, came to the chapel regularly and didn't miss, really. And so the chaplain at the time, this is before Jessica's Bob Stamps, he looked out and noticed uh, multiple days, uh, sessions, where the student was not in chapel. And so he wondered, because he was always in chapel. And so he happened to run across him uh, in, uh, out on the courtyard here. And he said to him, say, hey, uh, I know you haven't been in chapel. Is everything okay? And the student kind of looked down and said, no. So Bob said, well, come to my office. Let's talk about it. So he came into his office, and he said to Bob, he said, I, in my life before I came to seminary, I have had struggles with pornography and looking at, looking at digital pornography. And he said, I was free of that and victorious from that. I came to seminary. I've been living in victory for uh, almost two years, year, year and three quarters at that point. And he said, uh, but I have fallen back into it. And I could not bear to come to chapel. Now, at that point, if you know Bob, now I don't know what Bob, I know what Bob said, I don't know what he did, but I think Bob, if I know Bob, grabbed him by the neck and pulled his face right into his face. And Bob said this to him. Bob said, when you sin, you don't run away from Christ, you run to him. And then he said, Meet me at the Eucharist at noon. Because this was a non-chapel day here. So he went over to the Eucharist at noon. Well, that was a day I was leading Eucharist over there in Fletcher Chapel. I had no knowledge any of this had happened. So I'm there uh, going down the, in that little circle room over there. I was going down, body of Christ broken for you, body of Christ broken for you. I get to this young man and I put the bread into his hands and I said, the body of Christ broken for you. Just like that, he burst into tears. He was weeping. I had no idea why. So later I asked Bob. Bob told me why. He later testified this to the community as a whole. But the point being is that the, the Eucharistic moment where Christ met him and Christ said to him, you are forgiven. This is not a theory. This is God actually meeting you in the present to break the power of sin in our lives. Isn't that good news? This is part of the present reality of the Lord's Supper. So the presence of Christ at the table, His presence right here to break the power of sin in your lives. And then thirdly is this whole amazing reality that in the mystery of the Eucharistic festival, we actually become the bread of Christ for the world in the now. So if you look at the synoptics, and of course the, only the synoptics carry the, the actual institution of the Lord's Supper, there's four words, four verbs that are used that are really interesting that are repeated in all of them, that become part of the core message of the Eucharist. He takes the bread, he blesses the bread, he breaks it, and he gives it. So to take, to bless, to break, and to give. So the church pretty early on recognized that in some ways this, this reality is not simply happening to the bread, like someone up front, you know, taking, blessing, breaking, and giving. That, of course, happens. But there's more than a happening. It's happening to us. It's part of our story, isn't it? He has taken us out of the world. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. He has broken the power of sins and, in our lives. And then he has given us to the world. So we become part of the Eucharistic mystery into the world. Therefore, the Eucharist isn't something that simply happens in this room. 
It also happens as we go out into the world with his blood and bread in us. And so we become part of his broken bread in the world. And this actually not only happens in ways we think and mostly think about this, like we go and we become a pastor of a church and we're Eucharistically present in Toledo, Ohio, when we you know, come there as a pastor or whatever. And that's true. But it also happens even more profoundly, I think, in what we call the quotidian mysteries of life, that is to say the dailiness of life. Think about the things that we, the whole human race does. You wash dishes. You wash clothes. You mow the grass. You change diapers. Some of you are smiling at that one. You, you take showers. You, you know, there are all these things we do. We do so many things all throughout the, that make our life is made up of many, many mundane things. The world sees those as tasks. But for the Christian, those become acts. So as we live in community and we do things for each other, we prepare meals, we, we wash dishes, we change diapers, it actually becomes our way of saying, as Jesus said on that sacred night, this is my body given for you. See, that's what it means to live in the world. We are actually saying to the world, even in the dailiness of life, this is my body given for you. We give ourselves to the world in all of the holy ways that we do as pastors and leaders, but also in all the dailiness ways. In fact, indeed, can we really stand before God or before the world in place of ministry and service if we can't serve in our own homes, our spouses and our loved ones? You see, it's all together part of the Eucharistic mystery of life. We live sacramentally in the world. Well, the third movement is, of course, the future movement. And again, there are three ways that we remember uh, and think about the future as we come forward to the Eucharistic uh, festival. The first, of course, is that we actually look forward to the second coming of Christ. Because Paul says in the text that we eat this bread and drink this cup. We remember the Lord's death until he comes. Right, so and that's in the Corinthian uh, recount of this. So we have actually this anticipation as we come forward, as we're looking back, remembering Christ's death, we also anticipate his coming again. Christ is going to come and bring a culmination to this. So the, 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 bread, the body of Christ that left us is now coming back to us, right? So we know that the body that was broken is now whole in the resurrection, the resurrected body, and that resurrected body will come back to us. So we are in this wonderful period of waiting for that return of Christ. Secondly, we look forward to the reconciliation of all things. Because the breaking of Christ's body is actually Christ bearing all of the brokenness of the world. And the way God's judgment works is that God is going to, we know eschatologically, going to judge the world. And for those who put their trust in Christ, that judgment is being borne by Christ, right? That's the gospel. And so if those who do not receive Christ's broken body, as their broken body, they, of course, will be judged. So this is this point where the Eucharist reminds us that God is, is moving and pushing the world toward this final reconciliation. And we are ambassadors of that reconciliation, right? We are those who go out into the whole world to bring the whole world into conformity with Christ's resurrection and his uh, great truth of his broken body. Finally, the last future point 
is the great eschatological banquet because we know that these gifts of bread and cup are very meager. You're going to be giving a little piece of bread and a little dip into a cup. And you may say to yourself, ah, these Christians are kind of chintzy, especially at 1137 in the morning. I'm kind of hungry. I'm ready for a full meal. It's coming. It's coming. That's one over here. That's coming too, but there's something else coming. A real meal, the marriage supper of the Lamb. There's a great eschatological banquet coming our way, and these are but the hors d'oeuvres. These are the preparatory signs and signals of that great banquet which is to come. So we take, we stand in unity with the whole church throughout the ages, which holds their little bread in their hand, having dipped a little cup, but are reminded this is but the signal and sign of the great feast of which we will be nourished forever. Thanks be to God. So we come to this day. Let us not forget you're entering into not prose. You're into poetry. You're entering into an orchestral event. This is music. This is color, fire, and music. And you enter into that. You receive a great orientation about what God has done, what he is doing, and what he will yet do in our lives. Thanks be to God.